0: Good morning. morning. It's good to be here with you all. As Greg mentioned, preaching is not my main gig, but uh, my primary work is as assistant professor of Bible and theology at Trinity Christian College. And whenever and wherever I preach, I like to extend greetings from Trinity because we view ourselves as partners in God's kingdom work. Every day I get to open scripture with my students and think with them about what scripture has to say about their lives about their academic studies, and about their vocation. I mean, how amazing is that? And they pay me to do it. I still can't believe that sometimes. So it's a joy to be here with you this morning, to be able to open Scripture with you all. And we're continuing on in our Reformation series. The last couple of weeks, Greg introduced grace alone and faith alone, and today we're going to continue on with Christ alone. We're going to be looking at a handful of passages from Hebrews this morning. If you have your Bibles with you, feel free to open to Hebrews 4, 14, and we're going to pick up reading there in a few moments. If you don't have your Bibles with you, we'll be putting those texts on the screen. It's been a few years ago now, uh, but back when I was in seminary, between my second and my third years, I spent a summer as an intern chaplain at Pine Rest Mental Health Hospital. It was a rich summer of learning and growing. I spent time with patients in several different units and different kinds of treatment. But some of my most significant interactions came with patients who had been hospitalized. When you've been hospitalized, there's been a mental health crisis or a series of crises. And so people in that situation are no longer putting on airs that they have everything put together, that everything is fine. And so conversations with folks on that unit about life and faith and God, they were, they were much more real, more raw, and oftentimes full of histories of pain and suffering. And I remember one young woman in particular, she was probably in her mid-30s, and in the first half hour of meeting her, she laid a lot of pain on the table. A lot of suffering and the, the spiritual doubts and concerns, questions that come with a broken history. And at the end of our time together, we prayed. I, I went before God and I laid before him all of her pain and struggles and questions. And the next day I came on the unit and, and she ran over and she wanted to meet again, but I was really busy. I had a packed schedule, but she pressed and it seemed really important to her. So I, I made some time and we found a place to talk. And, and what she told me was that she didn't feel worthy to pray. The things that had happened in her life made her feel tainted and her own actions made her feel impure so she didn't think that she could pray to God but she really appreciated it when I prayed for her she told me that I I couldn't understand how much that meant to her and she referred to me as her liaison and in that meeting I did what she asked I once again prayed for her but there was something about her referring to me as her liaison that made me feel really uncomfortable Because I didn't want to stand between her and God. I didn't want to be the go between. She had established two different camps, her camp and God's camp, and I didn't want to enable the distance. I didn't want to perpetuate the lack of access. As long as I was around, she didn't need to approach God. Now, during the time of the Old Testament, there were priests. God instituted priests to mediate his presence to the people. It may help if we can visualize this. When the Israelites were wandering in the desert, they would set up camp in a very structured way. And the center of camp was the tabernacle, and the the Israelites would camp around the tabernacle. And in the innermost room of the tabernacle was the, the Holy of Holies, and that's where God dwelled. It was the holiest place. And each successive circle out became progressively less holy. And you as a person, your holiness had to match the holiness or the sanctity of the space that you were in. And so just to be part of the camp of Israel, there was a certain holiness that was expected of you. And if you became impure or unholy, you had to leave the camp. And on Sabbath, when you approached the the tabernacles, you approached the presence of God there was increased holiness expectations. So maybe you had to perform a ritual washing or perform certain sacrifices. And the, the last two circles had restricted access. Only the priests could go in the holy place and only the high priest could go in the holy of holies and even then only one time a year on the day of atonement to make some very particular sacrifices. Now in this scheme right here, priests were the key. They were the ones who could offer the Ritual cleansing and the sacrifices to wash the the sins from the people. They were the ones who could enter the holy places. And they were the ones who ultimately read the scriptures and told the people what they said. Priests, out of necessity, stood between God and the people. Now let's turn our attention now to the Roman Catholic Church of the Reformation era. There's a reason why the Catholic Church has decided to refer to its ministry leaders as priests. Catholic priests stand between Christ and the people. In the Catholic Church, the sacraments are the means of becoming holy, the the means of receiving the benefits of Christ's sacrifice. And the priests control those rituals. So if you want to receive the grace of Christ, the grace of the church, you need to go through the priests. And during that time, the church still read scripture and performed its worship services in Latin. And only the priests knew Latin. So the the laity, the masses, the people, couldn't read scripture. You weren't allowed to. They thought that you would misinterpret it. You would misread it. You'd make a mess of it. And so the priests also stood between the people and the word of God. You couldn't read scripture... A priest had to tell you what it said and what it meant. And the Catholic Church also has saints. People who, because of their virtue, their holiness, and their miracles, are canonized after their death as saints. And the people, oftentimes certain occupations or towns, would have a patron saint. And they would pray to the saint so that the saint would pray to Jesus, to Christ for them. And since the people were not going directly to Christ, but they were going to an intermediary, the saints, like the priests, stood between God and the people. Now, a lot has changed in the last 500 years, okay? We here gathered this morning, we are not the medieval Roman Catholic Church. There are lots of reasons why people back then thought that they couldn't approach God on their own. And a lot of those reasons don't apply to us anymore. But I think a few still do. There's still reasons that we have that we don't think that we can approach God's presence and we prefer an intermediary. And because we don't have priests and saints, when we feel that way, we end up not reaching out to and connecting to God. So what are some of those reasons? Reason one, sometimes we don't feel adequate enough, significant enough enough or worthy enough to go to God on our own maybe maybe your sins make you feel impure or ashamed so you don't think God would or should listen to you or maybe you just don't feel significant enough nobody else listens to you why would God reason two sometimes i think people prefer priests and saints because they 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 want somebody who's well-connected. My Catholic and Orthodox friends, when they talk about praying to the saints, they say it's like asking your friends to pray for you. So just as we ask our friends to pray for us, why wouldn't you also ask the saints to do that? But in practice, I think we often want priests and saints to pray for us because we think pastors and priests and saints have a proximity and access to God that we simply don't have. I mean, Pastor Greg, he usually sits right here. Pastor Greg is like a super Christian, except he's not in church right now, which, you know. He's got other things to attend to. But when I refer to Pastor Greg, I'm just going to point right here, okay? Pastor Greg is like a super Christian. If I want something to get done in my life, I should really ask Pastor Greg to pray on my behalf, right? God listens to Greg. Reason three, sometimes people want a a priest or a saint because it's hard to relate to Jesus. I mean, Jesus is God. He is perfect. He lived on this earth and never sinned. I mean, who can relate to that? And for half the population, Jesus is hard to relate to because he's male. In contrast, I can find a pastor or a priest or a saint who is like me. I can find a saint who worked the occupation I worked, lived in the place that I lived. Priests and saints are people like us. They know our struggles, our trials, our sufferings. In response to the priests and saints of the medieval Roman Catholic Church, the Reformers affirmed solus Christus, Christ alone. They appealed to passages like Hebrews four fourteen, which identify Christ ...as our great high priest who has ascended into heaven. And they said that we have no priest but Christ himself. Just as the earthly Levitical priest would pass through the rooms in order to enter the Holy of Holies... ...so Jesus passed through the heavens and entered the heavenly Holy of Holies. The heavenly sanctuary, the heavenly throne room. And there he sits as Lord of the universe... And Jesus, when he enters, he doesn't leave the barriers and boundaries in place. Rather, Hebrews tells us elsewhere that Jesus is our forerunner who opens up a new and living way so that we can follow after him. So that in verse 16 it says, Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. So what about those reasons why we sometimes prefer priests and saints to the living presence of God. Reason one, sometimes we don't feel adequate enough, significant enough, or worthy enough. If you keep reading in Hebrews, you read that Jesus, as our high priest, offered the sacrifice of himself for us. His sacrifice, his blood cleanses us, redeems us, restores us. Hebrews even says that it perfects us. This reminds us that one of the aspects of solus Christus, Christ alone, is that Christ alone can save us. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot redeem ourselves. We cannot cleanse ourselves. Christ alone can do that. In Hebrews, after describing Christ's sacrifice in chapters 8 and 9 and 10, in the middle of chapter 10, he gets to the implication for us, the exhortation for us. with pure water. Christ's blood cleanses us. And it gives us a a true heart and a pure conscience. That is why we can enter the presence of God. I am not adequate enough. I am not worthy enough. I am not significant enough, but Christ is, and Christ makes me worthy. Christ makes me significant. Christ makes me adequate. So approach draw near with confidence, with boldness. When we do not view ourselves as worthy to enter the presence of Christ, then we do not view ourselves in light of the way that Christ has transformed us. We do not view ourselves in light of the mercy of Christ, the grace of Christ, the blood of Christ. Reason two, sometimes people prefer priests and saints because we want someone who is Well, connected. Much of the book of Hebrews describes the role and identity of Jesus. And the early chapters go to great lengths to show that that Jesus is the Son of God who sits on the heavenly throne and rules over all of creation. Who's more connected than that? Who has more weight and sway than that? And in chapter 7, Hebrews talks about Christ's priesthood and it says that, that Jesus uses that position, that status, that enthronement at the right hand of God the Father to intercede on our behalf. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Do you hear that? Christ lives to intercede for you. To the Father. And what does this verse say happens to those who approach God through Christ? He's able to save them completely for all time. I mean, why would you go to anyone else? Who else can do that for you? Can Greg do that? Can a living priest do that? Can a dead priest or a dead saint do that? No, Christ, Christ alone can do that. But that might lead us to reason number three. Sometimes Jesus is hard to relate to. Lord of the universe, enthroned on high, ruler of the kingdoms of earth, savior of humanity without sin. Who can relate to such a being? But Hebrews reminds us that we do not have a high priest, and he's talking about Christ here. We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. And a couple of verses later, we read this. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Christ, the Son of God, the radiance of God, God himself became human. Now I want to try something here, okay? We're going to do a little call and response. I'm going to say, what God is like our God? And you all respond by saying, there is no God like our God. All right, let's give it a try. What God is like our God There is no God like our God. One more time. What God is like our God? There is no God like our God. Great. Be ready for it, okay? Christ experienced the commonness and mundaneness of human life. He was born a baby boy, completely dependent on his parents for everything. He learned obedience. He learned knowledge. He learned wisdom. He learned his father's trade, a builder, an architect. And he went to work day in and day out the grind to provide for himself and for his family. What God is like our God? There is no God like our God. Christ experienced the joys and the struggles of human life. He had a family that loved him, but he also had strained family relationships because they didn't believe the things that he was saying. They they thought he was mad. And so his friends and his followers became his new family, but they often misunderstood him. Nobody really understood him. And he had a really close friend named Lazarus who died. And Jesus grieved. He wept. What God is like our God? There is no God like our God. He experienced emotional distress. Emotional distress. In the Garden of Gethsemane, we see the agony as Christ prepares for his death. With loud cries and tears and blood, he prays to God the Father. And he goes to his friends in that moment of stress and he says, Friends, support me. Bear my burdens. Be with me. And they fail him. His friend, his disciple, betrayed him, betrayed him. And then all of those that he loved most in the world abandoned him, fled from him, denied him. What God is like our God. There is no God like our God. He experienced spiritual distress. God the Father turned his back on the Son My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from me, so far from the words of my groaning, from the cries of my agony? What God is like our God. There is no God like our God. He experienced physical suffering and pain. During his life, he had physical illnesses. He had bumps and bruises. He stubbed his toe. During his passion, he was whipped and beaten. Exhausted, he had to carry his cross until he collapsed under its weight. They crucified him, drove nails through his hands, his feet, but that didn't kill him. He couldn't breathe, and so he had to lift his body up just to catch a breath. But whenever he did that, the nails would cut through his hands and his feet, and eventually he couldn't push himself up anymore. He was tired and thirsty, and he couldn't breathe, and he died. He died, poured out on the cross. What God is like our God? There is no God like our God. Because our God became like us, suffered like us, experienced emotional and spiritual and physical pain like us, experienced temptation and agony and despair like us. He may not have experienced your particular pain, but he has experienced pain like it and experienced agonies that we cannot fathom. Our priest our high priest can empathize with our weaknesses. Now I want to conclude with three quick implications and a story. Implication number one, God wants a relationship with you. Meek, modest, insignificant, insufficient you. Sinful, broken, depraved you. Because of what Christ has done. Because of what Christ has done, he commands us to approach, to draw near with confidence. Implication number two, in the midst of struggle and strife, we have an anchor. Hebrews 6, 19 through 20 says, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. Sometimes life is busy and hectic, and we don't know where we're going or what we're doing. Sometimes we get bad news, and we don't know how to live. Sometimes the world feels out of control and that we're blowing in the winds of social pressures and national politics. And in the midst of all of that, we have an anchor We have something that holds us from blowing away in the winds, being crushed by the news, being determined by the chaos. We have Christ enthroned in heaven and we have access to him. He is the anchor. He is our anchor, Christ alone. Implication number three. Because of Christ's priesthood, we have an identity. We are the priesthood of all believers. The reformers, Martin Luther and the other reformers, they affirmed that every single believer is a priest. Not just the clergy, the the fancy people like Greg, but every single believer has access to God. And as priests, we have a job, we have a role, which is to... Mediate God's presence to each other, to our non-believer friends, and to the world. This reminds us that solo Cristo, Christ alone, it's not about me and Jesus alone. Sometimes we individualize our faith. We make it about me and Jesus. The priesthood of all believers reminds us that we need each other. Immediately after telling us to enter the presence of God, Hebrews reminds us, to not give up meeting with each other to encourage each other and to spur each other on to good deeds we need one another but this returns me to the story that i opened our time together with that that young woman who felt unworthy to pray what do we do with that let me tell you about another one of my experiences that summer at pine rest In addition to working on the inpatient wing, I also worked with patients who were undergoing ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, more popularly known as shock therapy. Now I know there's probably some negative perceptions about ECT because practice in the early half of the 20th century was less than ideal and because TV and movies have stigmatized and sensationalized. But today, ECT is a very controlled process, a very humane process that happens under general anesthetic, and it is actually the most effective treatment for depression, especially the most extreme forms. And so working on the ECT wing, which most people imagine is a dark and negative experience, was actually it had a very positive and life-giving atmosphere because people's lives were being changed. People who had tried every other kind of treatment unsuccessfully were finding relief, and well-being. And as a chaplain, I had a couple of roles. Number one, humanize the patient through the process, and number two, attend to the spiritual needs. And since this was uh, a treatment that took place under general anesthetic, there was time leading up to the treatment where the patients were having their vital signs taken, they were sitting in their beds in their hospital gowns, and during that time, I would talk with them about their lives, their families, their jobs, their hopes, their dreams. Honor them as people with lives. And I would ask them if they would like me to pray with them, and some accepted, others declined. But when it was time for their treatment, I had a job to do. The nurse would come out to to wheel them into the room, and, and I would help her. I would assist, and we would wheel the patient into the room. And the doctors would reach for the chart, but before it all started, it was my job as a chaplain to say, This is Barb. She's here for ECT. While the doctors rightfully went for the chart and the medical information, it was my job to name the human in the room, not the patient, not the numbers, the person, and to declare the reason why she was there. She's here for ECT, she's here for healing. I didn't belong in that room. But the doctors gave me access so that I could name the person and the purpose. And when I think about what what our role as the priesthood of all believers is, that's what our role is. We don't belong in the presence of God and Christ, but we've been given access. And so with that access, we don't stand between Christ and other people. Rather, we are called to, to bring people into the divine presence. So that young woman, what's happening when she asks me to pray for her? I'm bringing her into the presence of God and making an introduction. This is Stacy. She's here for healing. That's our role. We bring our fellow believers, our non-believer friends, the world, the creation, into the divine presence. And we say, this is Steve. He's here for forgiveness. This is Tim. He's here for relief from anxiety. This is Beth. She's here for comfort in the midst of grief. We bring people into the presence of Christ because Christ alone can save. Not me, not you, not Greg, not saints, those holy folk of yesteryear. Christ alone. Christ alone can forgive. Christ alone can redeem, restore, renew. Christ alone can heal. And so we, we together, we enter the presence of Christ because he is our Redeemer, Deliverer, and Savior. Solus Christus. Amen. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, You alone are our priest. Your sacrifice cleanses us and you draw us into your presence. Give us confidence to come to you. Lead us in our mission of service as the priesthood of all believers to lead the world to you, into your presence. We pray all this in the name of Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.